starting an Advent series. Uh, For those of you that are unfamiliar, traditionally the church has followed a yearly calendar. And um, the, the calendar breaks every week into a specific Sunday. And the calendar gives instruction on what scripture passages the church should read, um, on what colors the church should use to decorate. It's very thorough. Um, this is very common in the Catholic church, uh, some more... Um, Formal Lutheran or Presbyterian churches strictly follow the church calendar. Um, we are from a tradition uh, that's kind of called the low church tradition, where we're kind of informal and casual. And, and so churches like ours have largely um, fallen away from using the church calendar. But Advent is a season that, that everybody loves so much, um, we, we tend to gravitate back to the calendar for Advent, and it's the four weeks before Christmas, and so we're going to be spending the next four weeks looking at the Christmas story, looking at different things about Christmas, and what I wanted to do is um, I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to be studying the same thing um, as their children are studying, and I know not all of you have children, and that's fine, but um, There are a lot of kids next door, and they're learning some really neat stuff. We have a really great children's ministry curriculum called Why Do We Call It Christmas? And I thought, well, let's just use the children's ministry curriculum to teach the adults, because it's it's information that we all need. Um, And so the next four weeks are going to be modeled off of the uh, topics that are being studied by the kids. And so for those of you that have kids, you can go back to your kids and talk about the same things that they've been learning today we will have covered. And the things we're going to be covering over the next couple of weeks are going to, they're going to go in two parts. The first part is going to be some answers to some questions about Christmas. And these aren't necessarily biblical questions, but they're questions about the holiday in general. And they're things that I think a lot of us don't know the answer to. And then we're going to look at the Christmas story, see what God's Word says about it, and see what God's Spirit would have us take away from it. So this week, uh, as we begin this series called Why Do We Call It Christmas, the first question we want to ask ourselves is that. Why do we call it Christmas? What does Christmas mean? And the story of, of, of Christmas starts back... Um, around a thousand years ago, when the church um, centered its services around something called the Eucharist. If you're not familiar with more traditional uh, church services, the the communion meal that we have in front of us, the bread and the cup, was traditionally called the Eucharist. Eucharist means good gift. And the idea was that the communion is the good gift of Christ to his people. When we take communion, which we do every week, we talk about how Communion is a symbol of not just the death of Jesus on our behalf for our sins, but us taking Christ into our lives as we eat the bread and drink the cup and his spirit living inside of us. And that's a gift to us. And this, the Eucharist, this was the the centerpiece of the church service. You would go to church on Sunday primarily for this. Now, back in the day, uh, church services were held in Latin. 
some church services still are held in Latin. And, and the bummer thing about that was that not everybody spoke Latin. And so the priest would stand up and he would read God's word in Latin, but no one would really understand it. No one could read except a few people, a few of the priests. And so the important thing about church was participating in the Eucharist, participating in this, this ritual, this symbol that says, I am united with Christ. Now, the Protestant Reformation came along and changed that. Martin Luther and John Calvin said, no, 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 wait, the, the word of God should be written in the language of the people so they can understand it. And slowly over time, the sermon became the centerpiece of the worship service. And so instead of people coming to church for the Eucharist, people started coming to church for the sermon. And that's a good thing. But unfortunately, I think the modern church has taken that even farther and, and made it so that the sermon is often the only part of church that is important because we can, we, can now, we can podcast our church services and we don't have to show up and meet people and sing songs and take communion. We can just put the podcast on in our car and, and we've gone to church. Um, I think that misses quite a bit of the importance of the other things that we're doing as the body, but that's where we are. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular church in Seattle that recently came out with an app, um, and, and they, this is not new, but they highlighted it, and they said, you know, you can go to church at our church do this without ever leaving your house, and you just get on the website, and you're at church. And, and apparently there's like a, a kiosk in their lobby where you can log on to it and your face will show up in the kiosk and then people that are actually at church can talk to you. And it's like, it's just like real church. Unfortunately, I think that, again, misses the point. <laughs> but anyway, way back when, about 1,000, 1,100, um, so about 1,000 years ago, these, these services, these Eucharist services, they were called the Mass. And again, many churches today still call their services the Mass. And the Mass is a word that comes from the Latin word Misa, which means uh, to send. And at the end of the Mass, the priest conducting the service would say, you are dismissed or be sent. And it was uh, ite misa est. And so the, in Latin, and, and so the word Mass is what they called their church services. And it was this idea that everyone would be gathering under the body and the blood of Christ. They would be renewing this covenant they have with Jesus, that they are followers of Christ, that they've been bought by his blood, that he lives inside them, and that they're going to go out into the week and live as his people. They're sent. And that's where we get the word mass. And so every Sunday was a mass, but one Sunday a year was a special mass celebrating the birth of Christ. And so that mass was called Christ's mass. And the way we, we don't have time for that, so we shorten it and we call it Christmas. And so once a year, there's a church service called Christ's Mass, that over time becomes the Christmas service. Christ, if you're unfamiliar, is a Greek word that is a translation of a Hebrew word. Uh, called, uh, the word is Messiah. 
Now, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were God's people, as we read about in the Old Testament, and they were promised this great hero, this great savior, this person that would come in the future and redeem them, save them from sin, save them from death, save them from their enemies. This is the anointed one. This hero is called the Messiah. And when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek. And the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. And so when we see the word Christ, we need to see the word Messiah, anointed one, hero, savior, redeemer. These are titles. And so if you ever think like Jesus Christ, that's his first name and his last name, that's not. His name is Jesus. His title is Christ, the anointed one. And so the Christ mass becomes Christmas. And that's why we call the holiday Christmas. And what I think is interesting about this idea is just as the mass focuses on the Eucharist, the the idea that we are being reminded of being bought by the blood of Christ, that this is the center of our worship service. And even if we spend more time thinking about the teaching and preaching of God's word than we do about communion, the idea that Christ is at the center of our worship service should still motivate us today. And then we have Christ's mass, this special service that's all about the birth of Jesus. And now we have this holiday called Christmas that's about the birth of Jesus. But we look around us and there are so many things that want to steer us away from the birth of Jesus in this season. They want to um, pull us in a different direction. Whether it's fighting about holiday cups or focusing on the best deals on Amazon or whatever it is that draws your eye in the Christmas season, the idea that we call this Christmas is a reminder that Jesus really is the center of it. My company is having an office Christmas party next week, and Joanna and I are going to go, and my guess is Jesus won't really be present there. And that's not bad. I mean, I'm not super bummed out about that, but we have created a whole season of celebration where it's very easy to just remove Jesus from it, and it's all fine because it's still snowflakes and eggnog and gift-giving, and, and we've, we've completely removed the whole point of Christmas. And so the tension that we hold in the Christmas season is to enjoy the holiday because it's a fun holiday. There's a lot of great you know, lights and movies and fun everywhere, but to remember that Jesus is the center. So the second question that we want to ask ourselves is why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? So if we go way back, about 2,000 years The birth of Jesus isn't celebrated by the early church. It's not considered an official holiday by the church. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is a significant holiday. But the church doesn't officially celebrate Christmas on December 25th until the year 350. 
There's this guy named Pope Julius I, and he decrees, because he's Pope and Popes can do that sort of thing, he just decrees that December 25th is going to be Christmas, the birth of Christ. And there's a lot of reasons why he probably did this. A couple of them were, um, there was another holiday on December 25th, um, and this holiday was created in 274, so about 75 years earlier. And it was called the Celebration of Sol Invictus. And Sol Invictus was the official sun god of the Roman Empire. So Sol, sun, Invictus means unconquerable. So the unconquerable sun. And Rome considered itself a superpower. It was the greatest nation on earth, and it was this special holiday to commemorate and celebrate the sun god of Rome that, that kept prosperity happening in the empire. Also in Rome, in the Roman Empire on December 25th, um, the Romans celebrated the winter solstice, the time when going forward the daylight would get longer. I'm looking forward to that <laughs> this year. Um, and they, they tied that in with fertility and the seasons and different gods and religious traditions. There was also a festival between December 17th and December 23rd called Saturnalia, where the um, people of the Roman Empire would uh, celebrate the god Saturn, who was the Roman god of agriculture. And, and they would give each other gifts, and they would throw parties, and they would uh, sacrifice gladiators, which... It's a tradition that we have not carried on in our merrymaking. But a lot of the festivities of the Christmas season have kind of come out of Saturnalia. But scholars seem to think that Julius was saying, you know what, we've got all of these people celebrating all of these fake gods in December. Let's, let's give them something real to celebrate. Let's give them the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, to celebrate most modern scholars think that uh, Jesus was probably born in the springtime. Based on the story of the shepherds in the fields tending their flock, they probably would have done that in the March-April time period. But we still celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th. And if I try to think about the world back in the early Roman Empire... If I am a Roman and I am celebrating Saturnalia, I probably don't really believe in Saturn as the god. I mean, I don't, maybe I believe in Saturn as the planet, but not as the god. But, you know, it is an excuse to take a day off work and have a party and get gifts and go see gladiators. And so I'm going to celebrate it. But then we bring in Christmas. We bring in this story of the birth of Christ, the birth of this human baby that is also God. And that's really weird. That's really dissonant for an ancient person. Because today, while we have objections to Christianity, there's people that don't think Jesus is God. They'll say, you know, he was a great teacher. He's a good man, but he's not God. It would have been the exact opposite in the Roman Empire. To hear 
a Christian say, no, Jesus is God, but he's also a human being. The Romans would have said, that's crazy. Why would you worship a human being? Why would you, God, people are gross. We talked about this before in, in other things, but there's this, um, there's this philosophy called Gnosticism that was popular back then. And, and it said that spiritual things, the mind and the intellect and the spirit, those things are good, but physical things, the body and the earth and um, matter, those are evil. And so a God would never make himself a human. That's gross and weird. A God would be a spiritual being. And there's actually early heresies in the church that church leaders had to fight because there were people that were preaching that Jesus wasn't really a person. He just pretended to be a person because people are gross. Jesus would never do that. A God would never do that. And so at Christmas time, Pope Julius says, no, no, no. Don't celebrate these fanciful gods anymore. Don't celebrate Saturn. Don't celebrate these pagan deities. Celebrate Jesus, the God-man, the the God that became a human baby and lived among us. This is something that we call the incarnation, where God becomes one of us. I was reminded of the Joan Osborne song, What If God Were One of Us, from 1995. Does anybody remember that song? Yeah, a few of you. It's not a really very good song. I listened to it this week. It's, it's catchy, but the lyrics are kind of weak. Um, <laughs> not to be critical. But, but she asked the question, what if God were one of us? And, and the truth is, God is one of us. Jesus Christ is a human being. He was born as a baby in the flesh in a body. And celebrating Christmas is a reminder of that fact. We sometimes sing the song, Away in the Manger, and the, the line is, uh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Because obviously the Lord Jesus would be the perfect baby. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not sure there's any evidence in Scripture that Jesus never cried or never had to learn. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom. I think about the story of, of Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. His family is going on a pilgrimage, and they lose him. And they're halfway home, and they're like, where did Jesus go? We lost Jesus. I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. And they go back to Jerusalem, and they find him in the temple, debating with the philosophers and the scholars, and everybody's amazed at how smart he is. And Mary's like, Jesus, you scared us to death. We didn't know where you were. And he goes, well, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And I feel like, like we can read that and be like, Mary is just, she needs to lay off Jesus because he's God and he knows what he's doing. But I think maybe Mary has a point. <laughs> like, if, if I have a 12-year-old and if, she, if I'd lost her for days, I would be furious The book of Hebrews says that Jesus never sinned, that his life was free from sin. But that doesn't mean he didn't have to learn how to be an obedient child. In fact, Scripture says that he grew in obedience and wisdom. And so we can very easily forget that Jesus 
is a human being. And, and the Christmas season, the tension that we, we have to deal with in the Christmas season is that we have filled this season so full of fantasy. Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Polar Express and the Grinch. And that it's, it just kind of obscures the fact that Jesus is a real person. Jesus was really born just like you and me. He actually lived. And he's really nothing like the Who's in Whoville with their roast beast or any of the other fun things that we celebrate and watch and absorb at Christmas time. And there's nothing wrong with those things. I love those things. Except the Polar Express. I don't like the Polar Express. Uh, but, but Jesus is markedly different from all of those other stories. So now let's get into the Word. Luke chapter 1. Brian read it for us earlier. But this is a story of Mary finding out, Mary the mother of Jesus, finding out that she's going to have a baby. And it says, in the sixth month, in order to figure what, out, what that means, you have to go up a couple of verses, but Mary's cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. Her and her husband are very old and they don't have any children. They're beyond childbearing years. And God blesses them with a child. This child is going to be John the Baptist, who is going to announce Jesus' arrival. But Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And so... Luke says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph to the house of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So when we read this story, it's easy to see Mary as the Lord's servant taking on the burden of being a unwed mother in first century Israel. And this is something that, that she's going to have to deal with her entire life. This is something that Jesus is going to have to deal with. We see his enemies attack him and say, at least we know who our dad is at different points in his ministry. Because there's going to be this rumor, even though Mary and Joseph do get married, the timing of that birth of their firstborn son doesn't really work out that way. 
And so there's always this rumor that something happened. There was something that wasn't right about that pregnancy. And so Mary is taking on this this shame, this cultural shame, for the sake of this mission that God has for her. But it's much bigger than just her personal shame. Because the angel Gabriel gives Jesus some titles here. He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. In verse 30, uh, let's see, in verse 35, he says, The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. What Gabriel is announcing here is the beginning of a political revolution. Because in Israel, in the first century, they have a king. His name is Herod. And it's not that he's the best king. He's not even a legitimate king. Rome installed him. He's kind of a puppet king. But he still is the king. And for Gabriel to say, you're going to have a baby and that baby's going to be the king, that's incredibly dangerous. And we see that in the Gospel of Matthew. We see King Herod try to kill Jesus because he's threatened by him and the idea that he's the true king. And we also see Gabriel say that Jesus is going to be the Son of God. And this is a title that is used by Caesar. Caesar Augustus is on the throne at this time. He is the uh, nephew of Julius Caesar, if you're familiar with that part of history. And he said that Julius Caesar was divine, and he called himself the son of the divine. And so, and you'll see this written on Roman coins and things. The Caesar is the son of God. And for Gabriel to say, no, the baby that's going to be born to you is the son of God. This isn't just a political revolution in Israel. This is a political revolution in the entire Roman Empire. The statement of Gabriel is that, Mary, your baby is going to rise up against the political powers of this world and he's going to defeat them. That's a big claim. And again, these are, these are political titles. They're not religious titles. Gabriel could have said, the baby is going to be a high priest. And that would have been true or a great teacher, or a famous rabbi. All of those things are true. And the thing is, is nobody really cares about that. That's fine. You can be a great teacher, or a famous rabbi, or whatever. But as soon as you're the king, then you're causing trouble. It's interesting to read about the Dalai Lama in, in Tibet. He's the religious leader of Tibetan Buddhism. And that, nobody has a problem with that. But when he starts making political statements against the Chinese government, then there's problems. Then the government goes after him. Then the government tries to shut him down because when we mix religion and politics, it gets kind of dicey. But this is exactly what Gabriel says. He says, the king is going to be born to you. The one who will rule forever. His kingdom will have no end. And this announcement by the angel 
gives Jesus a role in history and a role in our lives that doesn't allow us to segregate him from different areas of our life. Abraham Kuyper, I've, I've, I've quoted him before, but he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is the claim that Jesus has on you, on me, on this city, on this planet. Everything belongs to me. I am the king. I am the Lord. And I think the tension that we have to deal with in the Christmas season, especially, is the temptation to give Jesus a place in our lives. And at first, maybe that sounds good to give Jesus a place in our lives, but Jesus doesn't want a place in our lives. Jesus wants all of our life. And think about other holidays. Think about Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We celebrate the birth of this great civil rights leader and what happens. All of your favorite companies post a quote on their social media accounts about justice. And for the day, everybody goes, yep, justice. And then the next day, and it's over until next year. Think about Memorial Day. Memorial Day, everybody takes a few minutes to think about all of the men and women who have been killed in the service of their country. Flowers are placed at graves, speeches are given, and the Memorial Day is over. And then we go on with our lives. Think about Arbor Day. Everybody gets a free tree, everybody loves trees, but the next day, nobody cares about trees again. Arbor Day. And it's really easy to do that with Christmas. It's Christmas time. Let's talk about Jesus. We love Jesus. And then Christmas is over. And we don't really think about Jesus for another 12 months. I'm sure you know people whose entire faith experience is connecting to church once or twice a year. And those times are Christmas and and Easter, the big, the big holidays. It's Christmas time. We should go to church. We should do that religious thing. We should give Jesus some thought. We should, put, we should have a place in our lives for Jesus at this time. And I suppose that's better than nothing, right? But that's not what Jesus allows for us. In Gabriel's announcement, he says, no, no, Jesus doesn't, isn't just a nice teacher. He's, just not, he's not a good rabbi. He's not someone that you get to fit into your life somewhere. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, ruler over all, and he deserves your allegiance every single day. And, and even for those of us that have maybe a more well-rounded faith, who, who maybe read our Bibles regularly and come to church often and, and, and pray we even have a tendency to leave Jesus out of certain areas of our lives. There was recently a, a fairly famous Christian leader who um, was interviewed by the New York Times, and, and he, they were talking about politics, and he says, I don't look to the teachings of Jesus for what my political beliefs should be. And that sounds crazy to me, <laughs> like, that, that you wouldn't bring Jesus into your politics. 
What about our spending habits? Do we, do we bring Jesus into the things that we buy? Do we say, you know, I give my 10% to God and then the 90% is mine to do what I want with? Or do we say, Jesus, you are the Lord of everything that I have. How do you want me to use the resources you've given me? What about our entertainment habits? What we, what we read and what we watch and what we consume? Do we, do we seek Jesus in those areas? Our career goals. I just had a conversation with a friend who was bemoaning the fact that she knows so many Christians at work that just shut their faith off as soon as they clock on. And it's not that they become bad people at work. It's just that they don't really consider Jesus at work for eight hours a day every day of the week. What about our generosity? This is called the holiday season, uh, the majority of nonprofit organizations receive 50% of their donations during the Christmas season. Why? Because it's that time of year. Jesus, let's give some stuff away. Let's feel good. Let's be kind and generous. And what, what gives us the right to just turn that on at Christmas time and turn it off the rest of the year when Jesus calls us to be generous people all the time. We're going to talk about that next week when we talk about Santa Claus. Uh, But we have this tendency in us to just compartmentalize Jesus and say, "He's, he's for these things, he's for this time. But Gabriel says something different to Mary. He says, Mary... The baby that you are going to have is going to be the king. He's going to be the ruler. He's going to be the son of God, and he is going to overrule Herod. He is going to overrule Caesar. And he is going to demand our allegiance. And this is what we this is what we celebrate. With communion. I said it was called the Eucharist, the good gift. The good gift of Christ is that we have been forgiven. Our sins have been paid for. All of the brokenness that is inside of our lives has been taken on Jesus and paid for in his death. And by his good gift, we call it grace, all we have to do is trust in him Trust that he loves us, that he died for us, and we can be given new life. We can be cleaned from our sin. We can be straightened from our brokenness. And then the Bible talks about all of these benefits that could pour on us. We're given his spirit inside us to give us new spiritual life. The ability to live life differently than the world around us. We're given this adoption into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of God. We're given citizenship in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the great king and we are his people. And so every Sunday, we have the bread and the cup to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, of what he's done for us, and who we are. The 
ritual of the communion meal is, and I've told you this before, but is much like the Pledge of Allegiance. Americans pledge their allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Christians pledge their allegiance to Jesus. And that's represented in this meal before us. And so as we begin the Advent season, as we think about the birth of Christ, as we engage in Christmas trees and stockings and gift giving and sugar cookies and the Grinch and everything else that we do, which is fun and fine, let's let's be as focused as that early church was on Jesus being the center of our gathering and of our life as we leave this place and go out into a new week. Ask yourself, what are the ways that I can make Jesus the center of whatever it is I'm doing? My my school, my work, my parenting, my relationships with my spouse, my friends, the time I spend alone. That's what he demands as the king, but it's also the gift that he gives us because we are so much better off with him at the center than if we leave him on the sidelines. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.